0: Well, happy Easter. It's good to be here with you. And uh, I just wanna say thank you guys uh, for being here. You know, they get here early and stay both services and thank y'all for that. And- uh, if you kind of think about it, uh, Easter is great for a lot of us and it's hard for some of us. It's hard for uh, those of us who are downstairs this morning keeping kids and gonna come to Easter second service or you're in here and you're gonna go keep kids for us in the second service. Thank you for doing that and I hope that you stopped by. Did you see the big Easter wall outside that they did for us? I hope that you'll stop by. Are we okay back here? Are we dying? Is everybody good? Okay, we're good. All right. Just so wanna we'll make sure, you know. Uh, I hope you get your picture made out there and, and uh, take the opportunity to do that. If you have your Bibles this morning, I wanna invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke in the 22nd chapter. Uh, as you're turning there, I just remind you, we've got a couple of mission trips taking place this week. Disaster Relief is heading out this week, and then we also have a group heading to Anaheim, California to work with one of our partners out there, which is just great. And so it feels appropriate, doesn't it, that it would be Easter and we'd be going out and do mission work. Uh, because this is really, for us as Christians, probably the most important date that we celebrate each year. When we think about Easter, our minds are drawn to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And today, uh, we're going to look at that. And, and I want to kind of just go back to something we started on Good Friday. If, if you were here for our Good Friday service, that was such a nice time that we enjoyed together and just appreciate what that meant to us. And I spoke about the death of the Savior on the cross as he was crucified. What I didn't spend a lot of time talking about was how he got to that point. Uh, you know, how, how did we get from Jesus being, uh, milling around with people and teaching and healing? How did we get to the cross? Well. Jesus had been eating the Passover meal with his disciples, and when he instituted the Lord's Supper that night, uh, a couple of things happened. One is that he sent one of his disciples, he said, you've got to go do what you need to do. That meant he was going to be betrayed by Judas. But he and the rest of the disciples, after eating the Lord's Supper, went to the Mount of Olives, and he encouraged them to watch and pray, because he knew what was coming. Judas was going to come and he was going to betray Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. And after Jesus was betrayed, he was actually subjected to three different trials. And you might think of these like three different court proceedings that took place uh, over the next night and day. And, And I want us to look at those because in each of these trials, they reveal something to us about the human condition. And we find ourselves in these places. There's something about these trials that uh, we're able to see. And I want you to see how each of them reveal these unique things in the human condition. And then I want you to see how the resurrection actually answers all of these problems that are revealed. So let's begin reading in Luke chapter 22, verse 66 this morning. Now keep your Bibles open because we're going to be reading Through a lot this morning in Luke 22 and 23. Verse 66, it says, when daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, You will not answer. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all asked, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony? They said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth. This is the first trial that Jesus endured and it seems very important but as we will see it was lacking the ability to do something that they wanted to do and that was kill him. They wanted to eliminate him and this trial didn't have the power to do that. When Jesus was betrayed he was actually brought to the house of a man named Annas. Now Annas had been the high priest, but he'd been deposed and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was actually now the high priest. But we shouldn't be fooled by this. Annas was still the shot caller. He's still the one who's like the marionette pulling the strings of everything that's happening here. And this is actually the place where Jesus was denied by Peter for the third time. It was actually at Annas' house. It says he was in the courtyard of the high priest and he heard the rooster crow. If you remember that. that, that's kind of where that took place. In the morning, it said they convened the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 71 people of two ruling parties in the first century. There were the the Pharisees, which you might be familiar with. The Apostle Paul said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees before I came to know Christ. And then there was another group called the Sadducees, and they were marked by the fact they didn't believe in the physical resurrection. See, Pharisees did believe that was going to happen. Sadducees did not. But what's happening here is, a quick reading of the Gospels shows you that these two parties are never in step with one another. They actually are in constant disagreement with one another. But have you ever heard the saying, "My enemy's enemy makes me a friend"? You know, I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing. Because they had a common enemy in Jesus, they're now friends right now over this issue because they want him gone. They're tired of him. They they really see him as a problem, and their distaste for Jesus has united them. In this matter, Now look at the questions they asked him. In verse 67, they said, if you're the Messiah, tell us. Well, the problem with that is they really didn't want to know if Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus reached through that. And he says, you wouldn't believe me even if I told you. And if I ask you questions, you're not going to answer me. This is all a puppet parade. This is what this is. This is a puppet show. You, you don't really want to get to the heart of the matter. You're not interested in it. And he said... Uh, You know, I can do nothing here that's going to change this situation. So they asked the second question in verse 70, are you the son of God? Notice how he answers, you say that I am. You say that I'm the son of God. In Matthew's gospel, it says that when this happened, the high priest stood and tore his clothes. Now that's a sign of mourning in the Old Testament and and the New Testament when you would tear your clothes and put sackcloth and ashes on. It it was saying that you were grieved, you know? So it's it's an outward manifestation of what's going on. I'm tearing my clothes. And then they start to say, what do we need to do? And notice what all the people said, he deserves death. At every step of the journey towards the cross, what has Jesus done to deserve death? Let's see, he healed people. He took people who were deaf and gave them hearing. He took people who were blind and gave them sight. He took lepers and cleansed them from that terrible, awful disease. And it's amazing that the Sanhedrin is opposing him because they see Jesus as a threat. They all believed a Messiah was going to come, but what they're saying is, it's not you. You can't be the Messiah. You're the carpenter's son. You're from Galilee. You don't measure up to who we want for Messiah. They were threatened by him because he was challenging their power, their position, and it didn't matter that Jesus said anything. They were never going to believe him. They would never accept him as the Messiah sent from heaven. The trial of the Sanhedrin actually reveals an attitude that so many people have. It's this attitude that it doesn't matter what you say or what evidence is given, I won't believe in Jesus. I won't do it. I I can't possibly believe that Jesus is the Son of God. No way, I'm not gonna do it. Because I can't see beyond my own disbelief to see who Jesus is. And, And many times it's because it's threatening. I mean, let's be honest. We like to believe in the Jesus that's cozy and cuddly, but that's really not how he presents. When Jesus starts to invade your life, it's threatening. Because it changes things. It changes what you believe. It changes your work habits. It changes your family dynamic. It changes so much. To say that Jesus is the Messiah means that you have to submit to him. I don't want to believe that, they said. Not interested. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and you have to deal with that, and some people refuse to do it. So that's the first thing we see. In this first trial, it's a firm refusal to believe. When Jesus leaves the Sanhedrin, he goes to the second trial. He was taken to the ruling governor's house. The man's name was Pilate, or maybe you have heard him called Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate is the governor of the area and he's a brutal governor. He hates the Jews. So he's not really a friend of Jews, but now they wanna kind of get in cahoots with him. It's, it's kind of this idea again, like, hey, if we can all bond together, we can get rid of him and we can't kill him, we need Pilate to do this. We don't wanna do this, let's make Pilate do it. Well, Pilate had been one who had put down insurrection after insurrection with brutality. He'd used soldiers and spilled the bloods of the, of the Jews all the time. And he's in trouble as a ruler. Pilate is, is on shaky ground as a ruler. And so when they bring Jesus to him, he doesn't know what to do with him because he really sees this as a problem that he doesn't want to deal with various points. He actually tries to release Jesus. Let's look at chapter 23 and verse one. It says their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, Will you say so? Pilate then told the chief priests in the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting he stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea from Galilee, where he started even to hear. And notice Pilate's interaction with the Jews. They're telling him things that aren't true. He said you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. Well, that's not true. When Jesus was questioned about that, and this is a great reminder for all of us because as I recall, this happens to be tax week, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Comes around to America too, doesn't it? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. Jesus had said when they questioned him, is it lawful to pay taxes as believers to Caesar? Is what they were saying. He says, look, you gotta give Caesar what's his and you give God what is his. Jesus was always telling them to do the right thing. And the sticking point for Pontius Pilate is when they said he made himself out to be a king because Pilate's like, oh, now we're in trouble because Caesar alone is king. We can't have another king. And I don't need this on my Watch, And so he's going to try to release him. And in verse four, he says, I really don't see any reason for us to charge this guy. This is not what we want to do. Now, there are two interesting plot twists that Luke doesn't record, but the other gospel writers do record for us. In Matthew's gospel in the 27th chapter, Pilate's wife comes to him and says, you don't need to have anything to do with this guy. I've had a dream about him do not have anything to do with him. She's been warned in a dream. There's something different about Jesus. But the second thing that happens for us is something that that I think is amazing in John's gospel. Uh, In John's gospel, it's recorded, and it gives us, I think, the most interesting insight into Pilate's frame of mind at this point. John 18, verse 37, he says to Jesus, "'You are a king then,' Pilate asked." You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this. I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Said Pilate. What is truth? It's an incredible question that's now been turned to a statement in modern days, right? What is truth? Uh, For years, I've heard people talk about relative truth. And this is simply the idea that truth is not absolute. You can't nail it down. It's a moving target that you can't pin down because there's no way for you to know what the truth is. And Pilate seemed to be uh, really ahead of his time, didn't he? I mean, he's talking about relative truth before anyone was talking about relative truth. Pilate is saying you can't possibly know the truth. Now, most people who claim that truth is relative... and and that it's not absolute, do so because it's convenient for them. And and you hear our fellow Americans talk about this all the time. You need to live your truth. That's an amazing statement. It's kind of like when people say, you do you. You need to live your truth. Well, that sounds like a wonderful idea, and and you could go, and you could be happy, and and you love the way that that feels, and you live the way that feels right to you. You. But the only problem with that is that's not truth. It's living the way you feel, and that's quite different than living in the truth. Truth is never a moving target. It can't be. To say that we can't know the truth is an absolute statement that violates the very principle of relative truth. It, it doesn't work. It's like looking at someone and saying, there are five books in my backpack, and they say, no, there's not. I'm pretty sure there are. I put them in there. No, there's not, there's 10. Well, there's a way to settle that, isn't it? We open the backpack and we count the books. Five can't be 10, it doesn't work that way. And for us to be so dumbfounded by this idea that we're confused with this idea of truth and that it can't be absolute. The great confusion that people are dealing with today is that they don't believe anything's true that doesn't make them comfortable. Now, this is important that you hear what I'm about to say. If you're going to build on what's true to try to make you comfortable, that's problematic because in more ways than I can count, you're going to start to see it unravel in your life. You'll start to doubt your identity. You'll start to doubt your ability to know God. You'll be confused morally. But Jesus answers all of that for us because he says, I am the truth. It's an incredible statement for someone to make. But Jesus was able to back it up. Go and read his words. They've existed for 2,000 years. Have any of them ever been proven to be a lie? Did he ever steer us in a direction that was wrong? Does he tell us to do something that is wrong when it's actually right or right when it's actually wrong? You see, claiming not to know the truth as an excuse will not give you a reprieve when God's judgment comes. You won't be able to say, well, I lift my truth. Because he will say, there is a truth and his name is Jesus. So the second trial reveals this this quest for truth and this idea that it's a moving target. Now, you remember that I told you Pontius Pilate was in a little bit of trouble, and on shaky ground and in this tight spot in leadership. And so he did what people often do when they're in trouble and in a tight spot. He said, I want somebody else to make the decision about this. I heard the word Galilee when you were talking, let's send him to Herod because Herod actually rules over Galilee, not me. And maybe that will work for us. He said, let's go to Herod and see what he says. Verse six of chapter 23. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he'd wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt. Mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Verse 8 is surprising to read, isn't it? Because it said Herod was glad to see Jesus because he'd been looking to see him for a long time. He, he was excited to see Jesus. And I want you to notice again who's there. It's the Sanhedrin. They're following Jesus every place that he goes. We want this guy dead. Somebody needs to kill him for us. Who's going to do it? It wasn't Pilate. It's back to Herod. Maybe he will do it. And they're vehemently accusing him, but Herod is dismissive of them. He doesn't care about the Jews, he's not interested in what they have to say. He wants Jesus to do something. He's glad to see Jesus because he wants to see a miracle. He's only interested in being entertained by Jesus. He's like a consumer, he, he, he wants to get what he wants and he jo- joins in with his own soldiers and starts mocking Jesus a- and they dress him up and parade him around, oh, you're a king. Let's put him in bright clothes and make fun of him. But then at the end of the day, he doesn't get what he wants and so he sends him back to Pilate because he had no use for him. A lot of people treat Jesus like this. It's a consumeristic mentality. Could you do something for me? Help me, show me something. Do what I want, when I want, I want you to do this. And even worse, it's not just folks outside the church, this is the modern church in America. We are consumers. I wanna be entertained when I go to church. I wanna feel the way I wanna feel when I go to church. I hope that I like what they do this week at church. I want Jesus to do something for me. And when I'm not entertained or he doesn't answer the prayers the way that I pray them and the way that I want them, and he's not at my disposal or my beck and call, I have no use for it. Well, notice that Jesus didn't say anything to Herod because Herod wasn't interested in knowing Jesus. He just wanted to be entertained for a little while and when he didn't get what he wanted, he had no use for him. So this third trial reveals a consumer mentality. But there's something that happened that addressed all of these issues and what we see is it, it makes them fall apart. And the thing that makes them fall apart is the resurrection. You see, if Christ had not been resurrected from the dead, you can treat him like a consumer. You can act like truth is a moving target, or you can simply refuse to believe because it doesn't fit your paradigm. But the fact of the resurrection changes everything. There's never been anything like it before or since. No one has ever died and gained their life back. Let's keep reading in Luke chapter 24, verse one. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, They came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of Jesus. And while they were, I can't say it, perplexed about this, I was perplexed with that word. How about that? While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women who were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He's not here but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee saying, it is necessary the son of man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Verse seven is the key. Jesus had told them it was necessary the son of man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. Well, why was it necessary? The resurrection of the dead blows away a firm disbelief. It may not match what you believe about Jesus, but Jesus came as the Messiah to save people from their sins. He's not just a teacher. I want you to think about this. The Bible says that we have a problem and it's sin, and sin is a separator for us. Now, this is the truth about our relationship to God. You may think that you're okay and I'm okay and we're all okay, but we're not. We're sin sick separated from God because of our sin. There's no deal here where you say, I gotta deal with God or I believe in the God that I've made. No, what does God say about you and I? He says, all of us are sinners separated from God. We don't have fellowship with God. And that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, died on the cross in your place. You see, your sin had a penalty associated with it. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is everlasting life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what that means for us. The only way for us to know God the Father is through Christ the Son. And Jesus says, I will come, they will crucify me, and I will rise again. Sometimes the gospel feels threatening to us because we recognize that to believe that Jesus is the Son of God will change everything if he's really the Messiah and Lord of all, it means that we have to come face to face with our own sin and deal with it. And I gotta be honest with you, most of us like to run from that. We don't like to deal with it. But Jesus is how we deal with our sin. He came so that he might die in our place and be buried in a tomb that was borrowed and rise again from the dead. And I want you to think about this. This, this is the most amazing thing that has happened in human history because if Jesus really is the Son of God, his conquering death means that he will pay the, the debt that should be ours and create a way for us to be in relationship with God the Father again, and not just in this life, but in the life to come. You see, I've got something I need to tell you this morning is I know that none of us like to think about death. It's unsettling. We don't want to think about dying. But it is a reality that every one of us is going to face and as fearful as that might be for us, that's not really the death that you're meant to fear. The death that you're meant to fear is what happens after your earthly body dies because the Bible says that on the great day of judgment, God, the father will separate those who know him from those who don't. And those who don't will be sent into an everlasting eternal fire, a place called hell. I don't say that to scare you this morning. I'm just relaying to you what the scripture says. Don't believe me, read it for yourself. I'm not making this up. Jesus talks about it. Read the gospels, read what he says about it. This is not some fanciful imagination kind of thing to to try to trick you into believing in Jesus, but you need to weigh the consequences of this. If Jesus is Messiah, it creates a blessing for you on the one hand, but a problem for you if you don't accept him as Messiah on the other. You've gotta deal with that. Jesus' resurrection from the dead then tears apart relative truth. Who can make that kind of claim and say, I am the truth? Now, we hear all types of claims, don't we? Uh, just over uh, spring break, I, I got to, uh, to visit uh, one of our presidential homes. If you ever get to, to do that, those are all fun. I enjoy doing that and I, I love reading about presidential historian kind of stuff and that kind of thing. When a president in our country is inaugurated, he lays out a plan, an agenda. And immediately, that sounds great, doesn't it? Until you realize that you have to work with other people to get your agenda passed. And that just doesn't go well for any of us when we have to work with other people, does it? It's hard. It's a roadblock after roadblock. So you can make all the claims that you want to, but you're not going to get that agenda all the way through. We know that. Same thing when an athlete comes and begins to boast about what they're going to do. How many athletes have boasted a perfect record? They can't do it. But Jesus made some claims and he backed them all up. He told them, I will be delivered into the hands of sinful men. They will crucify me and I will rise on the third day. When Jesus says he's going to suffer and die and rise again, you better pay attention to the truth that he's talking about because he is the truth. He is the life. There is no other way for us to get to God the Father except through Christ the Son, I know that living with relative truth makes you comfortable right now because you can live your truth. But can I tell you something? It's a ticking time bomb. It's a ticking time bomb. Because you know as well as I do, truth isn't relative. That's a lie that you're believing. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. One of the things that we see over and over again with relative truth is that eventually you find out there are uncomfortable truths you have to deal with. So why wouldn't you go to the source of truth? It exists outside of us. We don't get to make it up. God has revealed the truth of Christ to us. And he says to us, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one will come to the father except through me. But the resurrection also destroys a consumer mentality. Can I remind every one of us this morning that Jesus is not here to entertain us? Can I remind you this morning that Jesus is not a genie in a bottle for, for you to to rub and get to, to get three wishes granted however you want it to be. Jesus does not exist for our beck and call, and I wanna challenge us today. He is the son of God, and I challenge you, if you claim to be a Christian, stop looking to Jesus for entertainment. Stop looking to him as someone who owes you something, and when he doesn't deliver in the way that you want him to, you just pick up your toys and go home. That That's not how it works. If you wanna be in in that kind of relationship, you won't find it in Christ. Jesus doesn't deliver that way. It's time for the church and the people that claim the name of Jesus to go all in with Jesus and recognize that he's not just the savior. And I think that's one of the things that we struggle with, isn't it? Is we all wanna believe that Jesus is the savior. Nobody wants to go to hell. I love to be saved, but he said, I am the Lord. Confess me as Lord. And that takes a different slant, doesn't it? Because if he is Lord, you better do what he says. You can't separate. Well, he's my savior. I'll get around to him being my Lord. It doesn't work that way. If he is the Lord, that means he's in charge. That means if you claim the name of Christ this morning, your life should be submitted to the resurrected Lord. 1980s was full of wonderful bumper stickers and slogans, wasn't it? Remember this one? God is my co-pilot. No. You're not sitting in the front seat. You're in the back of the plane and he better be flying the plane. That's not how it works. God is my co-pilot. As if you guys are steering this thing together. It doesn't work that way. If he is Lord of all, we must go all in with him. And it is time for the church of the living Lord Jesus Christ to stand up and prove who he is in our lives. So where are you today? Are you all in with Christ? Maybe you haven't gotten there because you're struggling to believe that that Jesus really is the way. I mean, is it true that we can know absolute truth? Well, it's only in the modern era that we've gotten so smart that we've believed we can't do that. Pilate was a forerunner of his time. He was not the majority. What about you? Have you dealt with the claims of Christ? If what he says is true, then once we die, eternity gets really interesting. What are you gonna do about that? Maybe right now you're kind of stuck in a a firm refusal to believe, but I want to challenge you today. No one has ever loved you like Jesus because he died for you. He took your sin, he took your shame, your reproach, put it on his own back and went to the cross. The perfect son of God who'd never sinned became sin for us. And when he died... He ushered in the ability for us to have forgiveness in a relationship with God the Father. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, why not? Could you move past all the objections you might have and understand that it's by faith that we're saved? It's when we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God who lived and died and rose again. And I wanna ask you today, Why wouldn't you give your life to Christ? Why wouldn't you be saved today? There's an open invitation this morning to all of us because every one of us who can hear this message this morning can be saved. No one's excluded from it. So I wanna invite you right now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm gonna pray. And in a moment, we're going to stand and sing a response song of invitation. And I'm gonna ask you to do something that's Very bold, I'm going to ask you to step out of your seat. Come and receive Christ. I'm going to ask you who are in Christ to go all in with Jesus. Not treat him like you're a consumer. But to build your life with him. The resurrection of the dead was the miracle that changed everything. Father in heaven, how we give you thanks this morning for you have been so merciful to us. Father, we see that every group of people that was interacting with Jesus has the same issues we do. Some of us this morning are having a hard time getting past our own unbelief. Lord, help our unbelief. Some of us have believed the spirit of the age and we believe that truth can be whatever we want it to be. Father, that is a lie from Satan. I pray the Holy Spirit this morning would convict our hearts of truth and that you would speak. And for us who are in the church this morning, Lord, who claim the name of Christ, may we see with our eyes what it means to be all in with Jesus, for him to be Savior, Lord, Master, that we would follow him and not just be a, a consumer of what he might have to offer us, but that we would dedicate our lives to living for Jesus today. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.